FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is Political Rewind. If my voice sounds a little unfamiliar, don't worry. You're in the right place. I'm Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in today for my friend Bill Nygut. We have a special show today, but before we get into it, we wanted to update you on a troubling and violent weekend in Atlanta. Gunfire and violence across the city over the July 4th weekend left more than 20 people injured and four dead, including an eight-year-old girl, according to police. The girl was shot and killed near the Wendy's restaurant where Rashard Brooks was killed by a police officer. Armed protesters have been in control of that immediate area. So Coria Turner was shot while sitting in a car across the street from the Wendy's parking lot. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms called for an end to the violence, saying enough is enough at a press conference. Governor Brian Kemp said in a tweet, that the state stands ready to assist local leaders in restoring peace and maintaining order. We won't hesitate to take action without them. Thanks for joining us. We've got a great show today and great guests. We're going to devote the whole hour to reforms that have been mandated by the state for senior care homes. We've talked before on the show about how the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did a year-long investigation into that industry. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp recently signed a bill passed by the legislature that creates new standards. Today, we'll talk with some experts on the issue, including one of the journalists behind the investigation and the key lawmaker who shepherded the reform bill through a perilous, I guess we could say, legislative session, a session that was disrupted by the pandemic and absolutely dominated by state budget problems. But somehow, this bill passed with wide support. Also, don't forget, you can log on to the GPB News Facebook page right now. We'll monitor your comments. Also, you can comment on Twitter, at PoliticsGPB. All right, let's meet our guests. First, Carrie Teagarden, my colleague at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and one of our investigative reporters. She was the lead reporter on our investigation into the senior care homes, really devoting enormous time and energy and, frankly, a lot of emotion to to the effort. It's so good to talk to you, Carrie. I, I haven't seen you since we started sheltering in place, and we're still doing this show remotely, but uh, just to hear your voice is great. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for doing the show, Kevin, and it's it's great to see you, too. It's been way too long. Yeah. <laughs> also, we have Representative Sharon Cooper, a Republican member of the Georgia House who represents Marietta. She's also the chairwoman of the House Health and Human Services Committee and really was the force behind this bill. We'll be asking her about that, of course. Uh, thanks for being here, Representative Cooper. Oh, thank you very much for having me, and please let me start off by saying thank you to Carrie and the AJC and to Greg for running that series of articles. Uh, it really helped bring to light the need for changes and uh, put a lot of uh, 
you know, capital behind pushing for those changes. So thank you to the paper and to Carrie and all who worked on that series. Well, you're welcome, and I'm really glad you, you could join us this morning. Uh, finally, I welcome Jenny Helms, President and CEO of Leading Age Georgia. Her organization advocates for changes to laws, regulations, and resources for the betterment of aging persons and the organizations serving those people. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you, Kevin. I'm happy to be here with you. Okay, Carrie, I'm going to start with you, and um, I, I should actually know the answer to the question that I'm about to ask you, but but uh -huh. I don't. Uh, uh -huh. Take us back to the very beginning, uh, you know, the original idea of doing this story um, and, and how you got it going without your boss apparently knowing about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we try to, you know, work secretly uh, in the newsroom sometimes and get it get something so far going uh, that Kevin can't say no. Um, well, this story really came out of, I would say, something I'd been working on recently and then work I'd done many years ago. Um, I'll start out and say we were looking at uh, my editor, Lois Norder, and I, um, who's an amazing editor, looking at some kind of questionable bond deals that had financed some senior care homes and some shady characters that were involved in that and wrote about that. But through that, um, Lois and I started looking at some of the the industry as a whole, some of the inspection reports for these um, facilities that were fancy and um, fancy assisted living homes that were supposed to be kind of the answer for people who were aging and needed assistance. Um, and some of the stuff we started seeing was really eye-opening and disturbing. And um, so we decided we wanted to take a really close look at that. And I would say also, um, 16 years ago, I did a series about nursing homes and found that our readers were just so interested. They engaged with us so heavily once we started doing some of that reporting. And I, and I had a good sense that people really craved this information. Um, and so that's why we decided to really dedicate a lot of time and effort into, into this. So uh, what did you do next? I mean, I, I was just kidding about not knowing about it at all, but uh, <laughs> but um, you know, what was your sort of first move that told you, hey, we, we've got something here, you know? Well, um, well over a year ago, it was reading the reports. Um, and this is the kind of the heart of the, the kind of investigative reporting we often do. And so you'd see places that we knew had, you know, were five, six, seven thousand dollars a month with fancy dining rooms, gourmet meals, um, very elaborate lobbies. And then you started reading inspection reports and you'd see, you know, people calling 911 for assistance because facility staff wasn't answering their, um, their little call button, which is kind of the main thing you would hope for. Um, people being neglected, um, people, especially in memory care, not, um, getting out of facilities and unnoticed. We just kept seeing a lot of that. It wasn't like a, well, one bad apple. We were seeing it happen in, at places you wouldn't really have expected it and certainly not with families who place people and, were, and these are primarily private pay homes were expecting. And, and Lois started building spreadsheets early on of the kind of incidents she was seeing. And I think once 
we saw that it wasn't just an isolated thing, that it was systemic. That's when I think we knew we had something that needed to be exposed. So, Representative Cooper, um, we're going to get into the legislation stuff a little bit later uh, in our conversation, but you are, of course, a nurse uh, by profession and head of a committee that has really broad, I think, uh, and challenging uh, responsibilities uh, because it's health, the Health and Human Services Committee. Um, were you, I mean, were you aware of some of the challenges that senior care homes have? And, and when did you start following the reporting closely and what impression did it make on you? Well, of course, I, and I am a registered nurse and have spent my whole adult life trying to make sure that patients get quality care. Uh, I trained in my basic training in a Catholic hospital, and for the nuns, that was their primary focus. It was the patient. And no, I had really not heard a lot about the uh, assisted living facilities. More of the reports that came to me would be about the nursing homes. And uh, uh, certainly that over the years we know that we've had problems in those areas. But your the papers uh, reporting on the assisted living was basically the first I was that I had heard. Then all of a sudden, a pharmacist that I know well, whose wife had early onset Alzheimer's disease, uh, called me about his wife and trying to get her moved. And one of the problems he told me about in this memory care unit, supposedly, was that they would bring people's meal trays in, put them in front of the patient, and walk out. And then they would come back, and of course, many of these patients have forgotten how to eat or how to feed themselves, and then they would just pick up these untouched trays, basically meaning people were left to starve over a very long and excruciating period, and it sort of all came together at about the same time. So, you know, your answer, uh, your response and comments reminded me of some of this terminology being confusing. So I'm going to ask you, um, uh, I figure you're, you're, you're an expert having uh, been in this uh, so long, of exactly what these different terms mean, if we can just take a moment. So uh, we use the term nursing home, but we also use the term senior care home. And I know in the newsroom, Carrie was insistent on the terminology because of what it implies. But I don't know if, average, you know, certainly average people or even a lot of our listeners would know the difference. So explain the difference between the two, if you would, Representative Cooper. Well, in a nursing home, that's when patients need skilled nursing care uh, on a more constant basis. And the assisted living facilities were where people were basically, we when we passed that law a few years ago, and the nursing homes fought it because they wanted patients that were able to take care of themselves, we envisioned that the assisted living facilities would have people in their late 60s, in their 70s, who didn't want to take care of their yards anymore, who just wanted the convenience of being able to walk down to a restaurant, you know, uh, in their facility, uh, didn't have to take care of their yards, would have their apartments, would mainly be in totally independent. Unfortunately, that is not what had morphed over the years. Uh, we've learned that 
unlike thinking it would be people in their late 60s and 70s, the average age in assisted living facilities across our nation is 84. And by the time you're 84, there's a good possibility that you are certainly going to have cognitive problems in your ability uh, to you know, to think and to process issues. Uh, you know, they say that after 85, one in, out of every two people will have some form of dementia. Uh, and so this was the difference. One was supposed to be just a little more than whether you would live in an apartment and totally take care of yourself and uh, go out to eat or cook your own meals. It was supposed to be that next step up, that intermediate step uh, as you ease into uh, your twilight years, and the nursing home was where you were supposed to use, need really skilled care, like in Alzheimer's units and all. Uh, that is basically the difference. Jenny may want to pipe in on it too, but that's just sort of a overview of the differences. So, Jenny, let me ask right. you and bring bring you into the conversation. Um, one of the other terms, and, and and then you can talk about a few other things, but we also hear our memory units. Um, I think is the term, if I have that right, if I don't, correct me. But what does that mean exactly? Because that was the source of, I think, a lot of concern in, in the series. Well, memory units are where you really have a focus on persons with dementia, whether it's Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. And I do believe that the biggest challenge in assisted living or personal care homes through the years has been to understand a person with dementia, what they might be experiencing, what might put them at risk, and what kind of oversight they need to live well. And so the memory care units really help bring that focus. So you might have a person that looks absolutely fine but might be a wandering risk, or a person that might want to sit out on a porch, and somebody needs to know that this person has cognitive impairment and won't know it's not safe to stay out there in 95-degree weather for a few hours. So the memory care unit really does provide the training, provides for requirements for uh, really good care planning where you know the person and you help plan out what they might do in a day to have purpose and meaning and yet still be safe. So uh, uh, Representative Cooper did a fabulous job on this bill. It touches on all of the different components that we need to help people both thrive and be safe. Thank you. Sure. Now, Jenny, when you started seeing Carrie's reporting as an advocate for for people, you know, who fall into these age categories, did it did it surprise you? Had you heard about some of this? What 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 was your I guess really what was your reaction when you started seeing the reporting? Well, I was not at all surprised because when I did my internship in a small Catholic personal care home about 24 years ago, what I found was they treated people with dementia fine, but whenever they had a, a behavioral challenge that might be associated with either some discomfort, pain, or something like that, they didn't know what to do with it. Those people got booted to the nursing home. Then you would see people with cognitive problems, health problems, and that we didn't have nurses on site, and so they didn't recognize what those challenges were, and then that set up for a problem for those folks. You know, we had people that needed to see a doctor who one in one case needed to go to the hospital, and it was at that time people really didn't understand the changes that a person might exhibit with dementia that needed some oversight. And so when Carrie started reading, uh, writing these, I read every single article that she wrote, and I would read some of the cases, and I would be thinking, 
We need oversight. We need nurse oversight. You know, the cognitive challenges brings the need for people to really know what they're looking at in a person, what their condition is saying, and how to keep them safe. And um, the articles that she wrote had so many cases that just made it crystal clear that it was time to make these changes. And I think that they really added uh, viability to getting the bill passed, because when you read case after case, then, then you know it needs to be done. With that said, I will tell you that our association, Leading H Georgia, is the association for the not-for-profits and the other mission-driven organizations that provide housing for seniors. And they've been ahead of the curve. They've been doing person-centered care. They've had the staffing. So um, I think that this bill just brings it up to where everybody has to do the different things that provide the quality of care that people need and that families deserve as well. Jerry, Jeannie made some references to some of the specifics of your reporting. And um, I know, of course, firsthand that uh, the level and the dedication but also the emotion of, of reporting this story. Um, mm-hmm. Can you, I don't know, share a story or two that you did that really does stick with you, that was particularly difficult for you to, to relate but important? Well, um, one thing I encountered over and over again is, you know, a lot of people in these that live in these facilities are in their late 80s, 90s, um, and they've lived oftentimes very remarkable lives of service. A number of World War II veterans, um, just people who've just done so much. And I found over and over again, this just when you talk to family members, just interesting stories. And I'll just share a couple, I think. Um, a woman who lived in a facility in Macon, and actually her, we reported her story and was told on the House floor when the bill was passed. Um, she'd been a teacher um, her whole life. She actually continued to substitute into her 80s. You know, she raised a family, um, was very devoted to church, and had great-grandchildren, just a really great person. And she was, her daughter had put her in um, one of the best facilities in Macon. She didn't want to leave Macon. She'd lived there her whole life. And she had some dementia. Um, Her daughter actually had an additional caregiver come during the day um, to make sure that she was getting the care she needed. But one night, she got up in the middle of the night, apparently was confused, um, got out an exterior door. There were supposed to be alarms that would signal staff, and those alarms either did not work or just couldn't be heard by staff. A lot of bad things happen at night we encountered in facilities because the staffing can be as low as one staff member to every 25 residents. Um, She wandered just outside, fell down a very steep embankment, and broke her neck and died in in her nightgown. And she was not found until some hours later. And, you know, I think that what I encountered over and over again is families going to great lengths to try to make sure that their family members, um, that their last days were as they should be. And it's very complicated grief scenario when that's how your family member dies. A couple of two different World War II vets that I wrote about. One was the case that started the series, a, a man who's caregiver may have beaten him. He went to a a murder trial 
um, he wasn't convicted because no one could really figure out what happened that night. But this was a man who woke up in the morning and told other caregivers he'd been beaten, went to the hospital, and died within a few days and was never able to speak to his family members um, again. Again, that was somebody who had lived a great life of, of service. Another World War II vet who actually bombed the Nazis, gotten shot down, lived mm. through all that. A very bright, vibrant man who'd gone um, boating with his um, son days before and sat outside for a number of hours and um, just a little over a year ago in 90 plus degree heat in, on the coast of Georgia and died within a few days after that. And again, it, it all goes back to um, either not having enough staff or trained staff. These people did not need to, to have a death that wasn't um, how their final days should have been. It's not that they didn't live long, wonderful lives, but their family members were really, really hurt by how it all ended. Thank, thank, thank you, Carrie. Um, Representative Cooper, you, so a couple of things I want to preface my question with. I mean, we wrote about, I think, over 400 homes in Georgia who sort of fall into this uh, category. And again, most of them are relatively well run, and about a quarter of them appear to have problems or so. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, but talk a little bit more about how the industry developed and how it got into this uh, this challenge. Because when the original law that was passed that sort of allowed for the development of this industry, there was a lot of enthusiasm and a lot. I mean, many people felt Georgia had done something extremely wise. But then it sort of went awry in some ways, correct? Well, it did. And, and I, you know, we certainly thought we'd done something because before, if you just had a little bit of cognitive problem or needed a little bit of help, you ended up in a nursing home. And like I said, the nursing homes loved getting those patients because they were ambulatory, took, you know, less care, and fought us tooth and nail for years to get that bill through. I think what happened is that, corporations saw a way to make money and it no longer was the local person uh, who maybe had run a nursing home who wanted to expand and do assisted living like Representative Donald Hood down in Valdosta uh, who you know came on board uh, with a little encouragement for me uh, and helped you know put the industry side and talk to me about how it really worked uh, his homes are well run. And so it went from that kind of an operator to corporations who were out to make a big profit. And they saw that they could build these fabulous, you know, uh, facilities with all these wonderful amenities, supposedly, and they could rent them out at seven and $10,000 a month and, uh, and get a quick profit. But then they didn't staff them. And I think that's where we really ran into problems. And, you know, I, I want to go back to what Jenny said about the um, memory care units. And the bill now, they if they're going to run memory care units and have patients that need to be in memory care units, they will have to be registered. Uh, these will be checked. There's higher staffing ratios for them, not as, not as tight as I would like it, but there is a compromise process down at the legislature, but they're tightened up 
you know, much tighter. But one of the best parts of the bill is in these assisted living facilities, there were no requirements there be a nurse or at least a licensed practical nurse who had some ability to assess where patients were in their cognitive development, whether they needed more intensive care in a memory care unit, which normally will be locked, not not in a punitive way, but just so patients can't wander away. So there is more supervision for them. And the bill now has that uh, part in it so that it's not just to have an RN or a licensed practical nurse to do charts or care charts, but to actually be out assessing the patients and seeing what's really going on with them. Now, families are going to have to help us. You know, a lot of times families don't want mom or dad to have to move out of the apartment in assisted living, you know, more into more oversight in a memory care unit. But they're going to have to be realistic if they want the safety of their loved one to be at the forefront and to help us with this. So uh, I'm so proud of the fact that we've got that assessment area in the bill. Jenny Helms, um, I'm going to ask you about, um, you know, this question of staffing. But but I know from our series um, that that, uh, Representative Cooper's right, that this sort of this became a real estate play for large corporations. In other words, you could acquire land and build a facility for a certain amount of money, and then the financial equation was, and you could put so many people in there at such a rate, and you could make pretty good money. And and that was uh, the opportunity and why the industry took off. But as an advocate, I mean, this question of staffing, I- I'm assuming, is a is something you pay close attention to, not just the numbers, but also training and the kind of people that you need to do this kind of work. You can't just put anyone into caring for seniors, right? Oh, I think you're right. And I think that when you hire for compassion more than experience, you have a better staff for caring, particularly for people with dementia, because you have to be able to be someone who cares enough to want to know what's going on with that person and how you can help them live their best in the assisted living. You're exactly right on that. Yeah. And Carrie, we found out that even basic background checks uh, weren't necessarily being, in other words, the, 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 not just the pay, but the quality of people was an issue as well, correct? Yeah, I think what a lot of people don't realize is most of these workers that are doing the hands-on care, it's a 10 to $12 an hour job. And it's not like you're coming in there with the credentials, you know. It's um, just – it's a very um, – somebody's put in a situation. I think often we felt kind of the workers were put in a tough situation themselves, you know, to try to care care for 20 people with dementia at night on your own and you have very little training. I mean, imagine any of us being put in that scenario without much of a background, and that's just um, – really not fair to the workers or the residents. Yeah, I think that that is a crucial point. So uh, we've come to the moment where it's time for our first break. So um, when we come back, I want to dig into the legislative process, how the bill to reform the rules uh, actually came about. And I'd like, I hope uh, Representative Cooper can take us inside uh, what life is like in the legislature when she was pushing something like this. And um, 
uh, give our, give listeners a chance to understand what it really takes to to get a complicated uh, law fixed. So we'll look forward to that. You're listening to Political Rewind on GPB. We'll be back right after this. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for my friend Bill Nygut today. Back with me, we have Carrie Teagarden, my colleague at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and one of our investigative reporters. We also have Representative Sharon Cooper, a Republican member of the Georgia House. And finally, Jenny Helms, president and CEO of Leading Age Georgia. I said I wanted to give listeners a little bit of insight into how House Bill 987 finally arrived on Governor Kemp's Mm -hmm. desk for his signature. And Representative Cooper, I'm going to take you back, and I hope you remember this, to the Friday before the legislative session started. I know that that in January, that seems so it seems a lifetime ago, I think, probably to all of us. So if you don't remember, oh, I do. uh, I'll try, I do. To, I'll try to refresh your memory a little bit uh, because, uh, again, so much has happened since then. But I came by your office and met with you. And uh, part of what I was doing, I mean, I do that uh, 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 pretty routinely. And, and um, But I wanted to talk to you about uh, – the senior care investigation we've done and your plans to try to get a bill passed. And the biggest reason for that was really, as Carrie pointed out, we heard so much from readers. And I had talked to other leaders in the state, including the Speaker of the House, uh, David Ralston, because in my experience as the editor of the paper, we had never heard more about a story than we heard about this one. And I felt that was important for um, people to know. And uh, I also, I, I think, wanted to let you know we'd be following it closely and uh, urge you uh-huh. to be available to Carrie and our uh-huh. other reporters. Um, but I have to be honest, I remember that conversation, and I had the sense that you were, let's not say 100% confident at that point. And I don't mean <laughs> that you weren't confident in what should be done. I think you said to me, something about there are just a lot of forces at work when it comes to something like this. So uh, do I have that right? And tell me what you were feeling on that day. I'm sure I'm not the only one who came to visit you during that period. Oh, no, but I, I will tell you that I was impressed when uh, the head of the paper would come down to the Capitol to see me when I had been talking to the secretary saying, I'll come out there to see you. So uh, I was impressed. Uh, and it certainly brought home the importance to you in the paper, but you'd already, the, the articles, it certainly brought that to light. No, in the legislative process, the bill passed, I think, out of the House with no dissenting votes unanimously when it went over to the Senate, and that makes it sound, and when they reported in the paper that, oh, wow, it was just a breeze. But when the articles <laughs> had started coming out in the fall, I had already started meeting with groups, and they're, the people who represent the nursing homes in the, one of the big organizations also represent assisted living. And there is a real resistance from every 
often from any group for any kind of major change. Um, and so often the people who run the nursing homes and those groups, it's all we hear from them. And, I, and I've told them, I, you know, I'm pretty straightforward. I'm a Texas girl. I tell it like it is. And all I hear is, we need more money, we need more money, we need more money. Uh, we can't find help. We can't find help. We can't find help. And I'm just tired of it. And so I've been getting a lot of that resistance before you even came. Then we are a citizen legislature. Uh, we have people from all walks of life, and, you know, uh, I'm fortunate because I don't have a business. Well, I run my husband's – what was my husband's medical practice. He's passed away now. But uh, because of the type of practices, it doesn't take Medicaid, uh, so we're not involved in anything that's related to the state. And it gives me a lot of freedom. But there are a lot of people that are involved in businesses that we deal with. And, you know, one would hope that they would bring the knowledge from those, but also be open to change. But human nature is to be protective of, you know, what you know, I think. And we do have people who are involved in the nursing home, the assisted living, uh, personal care home business in, in the state that serve in the legislature, just like we have grocers and school teachers and all sorts of people from walks of life. And you never know what kind of resistance you're going to meet. I mean, I knew that probably from the lobbying community, the people that lobbied for these big corporations, they hire lots of money. They hire big-name lobbyists. Uh, and, you know, one of the nice things down there, everybody knows me, uh, a lobbyist can give me, you know, before session, can give me money for my campaign account, but they know that if I don't agree with them, I'm going after them full force. And uh, a lot of them found that out and got to see that in action this time. And so I really didn't know what we would face. I got tickled. One of the legislators told Carrie, I don't know what she asked him. I didn't hear the question, but he said he really sort of had a choice. He could lay down in front of a railroad tracks and get run over by a train, or he could join me in helping me get this bill passed. I mean, I've gained some seniority from being there. Uh, and being chair of the health committee, I think people have learned, and I've got a reputation knowing that I care about people and that if I bring you something, I'm going to do the very best I can and bring you something that's good for uh, what I'm trying to do. Uh, and I think that that kind of background helps. But uh, there was a lot of hours spent behind the scenes in negotiating what the bill looked like when it left the House. Uh and here again, it was pretty tight, but you know, it didn't. It didn't leave the house until almost crossover day. It took all the work in the fall, with many, many meetings, and all the work through January and February and a good part of March till we got to crossover day, uh, just before crossover day, to get that bill out of the house, to get it through the health committee, to get it into rules and to get it on the floor of a house for a vote. And it had a lot of backing, and I will thank the Speaker for all of his help and backing me on pushing this bill through. I am sure that he had quite a few people talking to him and going to his office about concerns about the bill uh, that I will never know about. But his backing was 100% on that it was the right thing to do and that we needed to move that bill. And so when it crossed over, 
and then we shut down, I, I can't tell you how scared I got <laughs> because we had gotten a movement behind that bill. There was motion behind it. And you know, when it crossover day came, there was only 11 days left of the session, and it's a time when there's a lot of hurry when the Senate takes up the House bills, and normally you would have that momentum behind you, and I thought, oh, no, that momentum is lost now. I don't know what's going to happen when it went over. And it went to a committee uh, that I was surprised about. It went to public safety instead of going to the health committee where it had been in the House. And I thought, oh, no. And I went immediately on crossover day, walked up to the side of the lieutenant governor where he stands, talked to his um, chief of staff for policy and said, did y'all put that bill in there to kill it? I mean, just blunt out, blurted it out. Oh, no, 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 Sharon, we didn't. That's not why we put it there. And he even called the lieutenant governor down from the podium when he was had a chance. And the lieutenant governor said, oh, no, no, we want to see that bill move. And I felt reassured, but then we took that break. And I didn't know what would happen in, in the public safety committee or what they call that committee. And, you know, we went on the long break and, and came back to push the bill. In essence, it, it may have helped because it let us see the problems we had from the COVID and from what was going on with the nursing homes and how unprepared everybody was. And it allowed us to add on the Senate side in several reg regulations going forth that covered and hopefully will fight uh, if we have a big resurgence of COVID, or we have any other kind of pandemic like that. So in essence, it helped. Now, there were some changes also in the Senate. That break allowed people to get to the members of that committee, and there was some loosening up of some provisions, like I had a requirement in memory cares that it was uh, 1 to 12. Uh, staff members for, you know, one staff member for every 12 patients in memory care, and that was 24 hours a day. It went to 1 to 15 at, at night, and I would have preferred to keep it tighter. That's the kind of compromise you end up with. But I was reassured by our facility people that they also had a clause in there that no matter what the staffing ratio was, if they go in and find that it was not staffed, enough to take care of the severity of the patients it was taken care of, that, that that ratio would not matter. They would go after them on that. So Let me jump in there. Sorry, uh, I didn't mean Carrie, to go on forever. Yeah. Um, Carrie, one of the things that the pandemic also did from a reporting perspective was, you know, add like almost an, another aspect to that investigation, which had more or less, I wouldn't say it was ended, but we had done a lot. We were tracking the bill, but then COVID really, you did some important stories during that period. Yes. I mean, that's really when COVID started, that was our focus um, because that's kind of where a lot of the bad stuff has taken place. About 45% of all the deaths in Georgia have been in long-term care facilities, nursing homes, or assisted living personal care homes. And I think a lot of people had family members in these homes before COVID knew the vulnerabilities, but certainly during, uh, as this pandemic has rolled out, it became clear that there were issues there. So um, definitely it brought it to a, a, the concerns to wider audiences as, as those deaths 
um, were concentrated in long-term care. So I think that did make a difference and did add another dimension to the bill after it went over to the Senate. Yeah, I can just tell you as the editor of the newspaper, one of the things I'm most proud of about the pandemic coverage, and I think that Georgia was more quickly aware of than other states, was the problem in those long-term care facilities. We had we were covering that almost from the beginning and actually had people tell us, right, and you're reporting that this is going to be bad. And, and the, the state brought in, remember, they brought in the National Guard and tried to do a bunch of things to keep people uh, safe. So, Ginny, um, during that period, uh, I would predict as an advocate <laughs> that you're, you were very busy with uh, what the implications of the pandemic were. So talk about that. And did you keep an eye on the bill or did you were you just caught up? And, and what was your concern about whether the bill would pass? Well, first off, I think the bill is chock full of great things that are going to help in the long term. And one of them that we haven't talked about is the pharmacist review. And in nursing homes, we worked for years to get the use of antipsychotics down, the rate of it. And this bill is going to help with that, too, because uh, the use of antipsychotics is high in assisted living communities. And the nurse oversight, uh, the training of administrators, this bill is fabulous. So we never took our eye off of it. But everybody in long-term care has been highly, highly, highly focused with long hours on COVID. And the reason is it is uh, such an infectious disease and older adults are the most vulnerable due to having high blood pressure and other issues. And I think that while all of the industry does a good job like on prevention of flu, uh, this took everybody by surprise. Everybody had to put total focus on it. And so all of our members were buckling down and then learning from each other and looking at best practices nationwide. And so we really had to look at all of the different things like the fogging uh, for infection control, uh, testing. And one thing that I want to say is I think that our governor did a beautiful job, beautiful job bringing in the National Guard, both for infection control and for testing, and that this is not over. Older adults are at risk, and we have to stay on top of this 100%. And we need the public to do their part and wear masks out in public so that our caregivers, uh, who are at biggest risk for bringing it back into communities, won't be getting COVID and bringing it back. So everybody is highly focused on it now. I mean, highly, highly as they should be. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Representative Cooper, I mean, there's, there was no uh, doubt that the legislature was totally focused on the budget and all the implications of that. Um, how did you keep the bill from getting lost? Uh, because it, it, it is, uh, I mean, it asks basically for some spending, as I understand it. Um, how did you save it from the acts that fell on so many other parts of the state budget? Well, I think that that, I can't take credit for that, although I certainly talked to our head of our budget, and and uh, he worked with the Senate, the new Senate head of the budget. And, you know, the governor was also behind this bill. So I think that was an issue that everybody knew that we had to get this bill passed, that it was the right thing to do, and that we had to support it in whatever the needs were. And the department worked closely with me. Uh, Joe Hood in the department was by my side the whole time. He works in uh, that area, uh, making sure that that 
we got this right. And so it was a group and a team effort, starting from the speaker, uh, lieutenant governor, and certainly headed by our governor on this issue. Uh, and I think that for for once, Georgians can be proud, uh, having looked at staffing and the way things were done from all over the country before I started this. Uh, I think we are now a leader in putting in many of these reforms. The other thing the governor did way back in January in answering a need that I've been talking about and talking with him uh, with his uh, team with is that we don't have enough people to work in these facilities. Uh, certified nursing assistants. And there is a program through the HOPE, a different form of the HOPE uh, scholarship program uh, out of that money, where we pay for, in technical schools, when we are short in an area of people to work like welders, uh, like LPNs, uh, and we had never had nursing assistants, certified nursing assistants. And starting in January, the governor put certified nursing assistants on that list, and people all over our state can go to technical college that offer these programs uh, tuition-free through this program so that we can get better trained people to work in these facilities, get them more uh, staff. And one of the things that the bill did was push for earlier uh, education. If you deal with Alzheimer's patients and they lash out at you and you don't understand that that's part of the process that's going on with them, you may get angry and slap back at them, which you shouldn't if you don't, but if you, you might. And, you know, that's the death that they had up in Marietta uh, was a man reacting and they, you know, this was an untrained person who had apparently anger problems and should never have done that. But dealing with dementia patients can be very trying. And they do often go through a phase where they, you know, are very frustrated and do act out. And if you don't know that and don't know ways to counter that, then the reaction can be very bad and can cause serious problems for the We're patient. We're going to jump in here uh, because our, I've got to get our last break okay. in. I, I'm sorry to interrupt no, you fine. again. It's time for that last break. So when we come back, though, we're going to we're going to talk about what the reforms mean going forward and, and how the new regulations will be put in place. So um, this is Political Rewind on GPB. We will be right back. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley filling in today for Bill Nygut. With me are Carrie Teagarden, a reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Representative Sharon Cooper, a Republican member of the Georgia House, and Jenny Helms, President and CEO of Leading Age Georgia. We've been talking about House Bill 987, which reforms senior care homes in Georgia. So the question now is, what happens? In other words, what are we going to see? So, uh, Carrie Teagarden, what's your take on that? Um, I think we're going to see, a, we hope, a new level of um, care provided in these facilities. We're going to have nurses for the first time. We're going to have administrators who are actually licensed and have to pass a test. Before this, you could run in one of these facilities with very little background or, or really training. Um, we're going to see certification of memory units for the first time. We're going to have to see facilities show that they have the financial stability to open one of these places. And if they're going bankrupt, they're going to, or selling, they're going to have to tell their residents and families 
Um, and and the other big thing is if they hurt somebody if because of they're not caring for people property properly, they're going to get bigger fines. And so I think that'll make a big difference. And what about you, Representative Cooper? I mean, there are some things that have to happen uh, to make all this stuff work, right? Well, we it goes into effect next July. Uh, we knew that there would need time for these facilities to, to phase into this. Yes, there's a new uh, – there's a board already existing for nursing homes. It adds members of assisted living, the governor, and redesigns that board to make them more active, to oversee these – you know, to – put into place and to sort of be another check on these facilities. That has to be put in place and appointed by the government. So it it will take some time to move and get all of these uh, new requirements in place. Uh, now, the COVID requirements went into effect as soon as the governor signed the bill. But in a few short months, in, Je in July, we expect these facilities to be up and running and doing what we put into law. And I expect a much better uh, report coming after we see those new uh, requirements in place. Jenny Helms, you've you've made it no secret that you're a huge fan of the uh, of the bill. What do you see as the single most important part of it? Your favorite part of it? My favorite part is that people will be equipped to provide the proper care for people living with dementia. 60% or more of people living in assisted livings do have dementia. This will equip them to better care for them, and that's very important. And one point I really want to make is there are some fantastic caregivers out there that this is their life's mission. This will just better equip them to do their jobs well. Uh, yes, thank you for that, Jenny. Carrie, uh, you've been pretty open about with me at least, about how proud mm -hmm. you are of our work on this. So quickly, uh, tell me why you feel that way. Well, I think I'm, I'm proud of this because it's something that mattered to so many family members. There are so many people who are just trying to find a, a really great caring facility for their family members and that needs to um, take place. It's something that affects everybody. And I think I'm proud of it because we went to such, into the reporting went into such great depth that even the industry itself, I think, was surprised at like how widespread some of these issues were. And for that reason, they actually supported some of the, the measures here. It recognized the need. And I think only by having a, a newspaper that's willing to devote the resources to this kind of reporting that takes months can we actually present facts that make it undeniable that something needs to change, and it did. Thanks, Harry. And I'll remind people that a lot of that, including our database of the homes, is still available online. That'll do it for today's Political Rewind. I'd like to thank our guests, beginning with Carrie Teagarden from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Again, good to see you. Uh, Representative Sharon Cooper. Thank you. And Jenny Helms of Leading AH Georgia. And thanks to all of you for joining us today for a great conversation, and thanks for listening. Remember, if you missed any part of the show or if you liked it so much that you want to listen again, you can find it on gpbnews.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kevin Riley. Political Rewind will be back tomorrow with a discussion of education in Georgia in the wake of budget cuts and COVID-19. Thank you.